following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So this past week, during our Wednesday morning prayer time, there was four of us there. It was me and Pete Teal and Amy Gordon and Peg Pickard. And what we did to start out was we just read through Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. It was my passage for the week, so it seemed appropriate to pray it or pray over it at least. And we did something that I don't typically do, but the times that I've done it, I've really found it to be valuable. That is, we just read through the verses, and then we took a couple minutes just to meditate on the verses and talk about what stands out to you. Uh, what questions do you have? What insights do you have? And we did that. We did it again. Read the passage again. Talked some more about it. And I realized by the time we were done that even though I had been prepping for one particular topic for this Sunday's sermon, there was at least six topics to be addressed. This could easily be a six-part series on just these six verses. That's not going to happen. I'm going to take a slightly different approach this morning. And this is breaking some rules of preaching, I think, because normally you come up here with one topic and you just hit it over and over again. I want to hit six topics this morning, partly because... Just this way of reading scripture is one in which if you really spend time kind of soaking in and really meditating on scripture, it turns out there's so much being said, even in the smallest of passages. And I I walked away from our, our prayer time Sunday morning just impressed once again on the richness of the Bible and God's revelation to us. But I also realized as I was prepping these six different many things to go this morning, they actually all tell the same story. Who knew the Bible had a coordinated narrative? So we're going to go through all six of these this morning. And my hope as I do this is, number one, uh, it, it gives you something to follow up on during the week. If there's one of these particular things where you go, you know, that's something I think uh, I need to look into a little bit more as a Christian. I mean, all six of them are good, obviously. But there might be something that, that God puts on your heart, like dig into this a little bit more. So it gives you lots of options. And it gives us lots of topics to talk about in Message Plus. So here's the passage, Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. So all of you who are holy partners in a heavenly calling, let's turn our attention to Jesus, the emissary of God and high priest, who brought us the faith we profess and compare him to Moses, who also brought words from God to all God's people. Some of your translations might say all of God's household. Both of them were faithful to their missions, to the one who called them. But we value Jesus more than Moses in the same way that we value a builder more than the house he builds. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses brought healing and redemption to his people as a faithful servant in God's house. And he was a witness to the things that would be spoken later. But Jesus the anointed was faithful as a son of that house. And we become that house if we're able to hold on to the confident hope we have in God until the end. All right, let's just work our way through it. We start with all of you who are holy partners in a heavenly calling. And I think that's amazing. That when I look around this room, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I are a holy partner in a heavenly calling. That's awesome. You know what that also means? 
Uh, think about who else is in the room here with you. Don't look at anybody when I say this. Think about the person you have the most tension with right now. Nobody elbow their spouse. Think about the person on Facebook this week from this church or some other church where you're like, oh, you're driving me nuts. Don't shout out any names. You are all holy partners in a heavenly calling. That's more important than anything else. We are holy partners in a heavenly calling. And the implications of that are huge. Do I pray for the other holy partners in the heavenly calling? When I speak of other followers of Jesus, when I speak to them, when I talk about them, am I treating them in all cases as holy partners in a heavenly calling? When I think of them, do I remember they are holy partners with me in a heavenly calling? We're a team. As followers of Christ, we are on the same team. And that means I've got to encourage people. I've got to challenge people, build them up, comfort them. I have to be patient, kind, long-suffering, gentle, and bold. I have to love people deeply and thoroughly and exhaustively. And I wonder what would happen in our lives if this would be the filter by which we thought of others in the body of Christ, the filter through which we spoke of others and to others in the body of Christ, the filter for the attitudes we bring to particular situations. If I always thought of all of my sisters and brothers in Christ as people who are holy partners in a heavenly calling, if that guided us at every moment, that's a beautiful community. That's not just a beautiful community to be a part of. That is a light to the world of how the people of God love each other. Not saying it won't be hard. Doesn't mean there's not tension. It doesn't mean you're not bold and you speak truth when you need to, but you always do it with grace and you're always at the back of your mind remembering, I'm holy partners in a heavenly calling. I have to believe Jesus is glorified when his people interact with each other like that. So that's the first thing that stood out to us Wednesday morning. Second thing, let's turn our attention. And once again, depending on your translation, it might say this differently. Let's fix our thoughts on, let's focus on, let's consider Jesus, the emissary of God and high priest who brought us the faith we profess. So this isn't just kind of glance at Jesus. This is to be riveted with Jesus. So thinking of examples this week of times in my life where I've been fixated on things. Uh, The first time I saw my wife across the crowded cafeteria, I was pretty fixated on her, I'll be honest. And then I just couldn't take my eyes off of her. Like, Sheila walked into the room, that's where my eyes went. Like, it didn't matter what else was going on. And I'll be honest, even when I was in church, I turned my, I fixed my eyes on Sheila more often than not. Uh, is that wrong to say that? Do you understand what I mean by that? She wasn't an idol. I just mean she caught my attention everywhere she was. First couple times I went to Costa Rica, uh, everybody there laughed at me because everywhere we went, I just kept looking at the mountains. I'm like scrunched in the backseat of a car, twisted all funny, taking pictures. I went there one time and the front taking side of the pictures for my uh, phone, camera, whatever, didn't work. So I had to take everything in selfie mode. 
So I'm like standing where there's mountains in the background constantly, and people thought I was really full of myself, which was kind of fun. But I, I couldn't stop. Like even when I go now, I just get distracted because I look at the mountains. I've got three papers in my office at eye level. Every time I sit down at my desk, they're right in front of me. Uh, the first one is a list that Delin gave me years ago. In fact, he did a sermon here on humility and what the fruit of pride looked like. I've got that list in front of me whenever I sit down in my office because I know my weakness. I know my tendency toward pride. And I have to read through that to remind myself of what humility looks like versus pride. The second thing is I have a little note that's written there. I was talking with my spiritual mentor a number of years ago. I was at a place in my life where I had I had found great comfort and great peace with with knowing that God is faithful in my life, that I could trust God to carry me through the hard situations of life and through my imperfections. But I was also at a place where I was really too much so, I was overburdened by the brokenness around me. And and he said to me, Anthony, you trust God to carry you, right? I said, yeah. He goes, why don't you trust God to carry others? So I have this sign in front of me. Trusting God to carry me equals trusting God to carry others. If God is faithful in me, God is faithful in others. And the third one I have is my certificate of ordination from here. So the first one, Delenn's list, grounds me. The second one, my little handwritten note, comforts me. And the third one motivates me as it reminds me I've been given this great privilege and this great responsibility. I just give you those examples to ask, what does it look like to fix my eyes on Jesus? What does it look like for me to pin Jesus on the wall of my life right in front of me so that in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus? What does it look like in my life? What difference would it make in my life if the thing that I was focused on all the time was the person and the work of Jesus? That I get out of bed and I think of Jesus, and I go to work and I think of Jesus, and I go on a date with my wife and I think of Jesus, as much as my wife still catches my attention. I need to fix on Jesus. How do I come to church and fix on Jesus? How do I watch sports and fix on Jesus? How do I do this over and over again? If these things that Jesus gave as gifts to the world capture my attention that much, how can I not be overwhelmed by the one who gave it? It's that process of looking past the gifts and seeing the giver. And I think two things happen when we do this. Number one, we're guided and secondly, we're comforted. So I got to give you two more examples. One thing I learned when I was learning how to do um, Olympic style weightlifting was your body will go where your eyes go. So if you're wanting to do a squat, if you look down, you're going to want to fall forward. If you look up too far, you're going to want to fall backwards. You got to set your eyes straight and the course of your body follows that. If any of you farm, Uh, at least before GPS. If you wanted to plant something and you wanted a straight row, you fixed your eyes on some landmark on the other side of the field and you didn't take your eyes off of it. So that's one thing that happens when we fix our eyes. We're guided by it. Our life or our body tends to follow that which we are fixed upon. 
for the comfort, the example I thought of was after I had my accident a number of weeks ago, uh, I was pretty shook up, but I knew they had called for the ambulance, and I knew what direction the ambulance was coming for, so I fixed my eyes on that road, and I waited, and I could hear the sound, and then I saw the lights, and then I relaxed, because I knew that my help had arrived. So I think we're comforted when we fix our eyes, and then that which we're longing for appears. The Bible says of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he adored the cross. He knew what was up ahead. He fixed his eyes. We hear that language in Scripture a lot about looking to the finish line, looking ahead, knowing what, where we're going or who is coming. And we're given hope when we do that. We're encouraged when we do that. We can endure when we do that. So I've been asking myself, what guides me and comforts me? Where's my gaze fixed? Is my gaze fixed on Jesus? What do I put on the walls of my life? I know what I put on my office. That's easy compared to what I put on the walls of my life. So that was the second thing that stood out Wednesday morning. The third thing, we compare him to Moses who brought words from God to all of God's people. Both of them were faithful to their missions, to the one who called them, but we value Jesus more than Moses in the same way that we value a builder more than the house he builds. Now, honestly, when we read this, the first thing I thought of was, I'm not sure that that's true, that we always value the builder more than the house that the builder builds. Uh, I have no idea who built my house, and honestly, I don't care, but I do care about my house. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying I really haven't given much thought to the builder. But I've done construction work for a lot of years in my life, and I've been in a lot of situations where I have seen homeowners whose houses are being built interact with the builders. And I promise you, in a lot of those situations, if not the overwhelming majority, the people value the house more than the builder. How do I know this? Because they treat the builder like crap. But you dare not scratch their house. It says something about priorities, And I think this is kind of the default. Perhaps this is why the writer of Hebrews includes this analogy to remind us that if we become consumer-oriented, that is, we begin to like the things more than the people who give us the things. And this isn't just for people in our lives, but this is now the things of God more than the God who gave it. If that is the priority, something is disordered in our lives. Going back to my analogies about fixing my eyes on Sheila, and fixing my eyes on mountains, and these types of things, if that actually becomes the focus of my life, rather than the one who made the mountains and who gave me Sheila, this is going to be a problem. I'm I'm valuing what was built, so to speak, instead of the builder. And and as I was thinking about this this week, that number one has implications for how we interact with others. Do we only value others because of what they can do for us or what they can give us? Or do we value them as people? That they are more important than what they do or what they give. So that's part of it. But the part that struck me more was as I think about my relationship with God. Do I value God more than the things that God gives me? Every good and perfect gift comes from above. God gives good gifts. The Bible is clear. All grace that we experience in this world is from God. Right? 
But do I care more for and do I fix my eyes more on the things God gives me than I do on God? So do I, do I fix my eyes more on the healing God can give us than the healer himself? Do I think more about the friends I want God to give me than Jesus being the friend of sinners? Do I think more of the gifts of the Spirit or the giver of the gifts? Do I long for the comfort of God or do I long for the comforter? Do I pursue the way of God or the one who is the way? Do I long for life more abundant versus the one who gives that life? Now, I don't mean this as total opposites. It's possible to both long for, say, the way of God and the one who is the way. So the, the stuff on the left, they aren't bad things, but they can't be the things we fix our eyes on. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author of our faith and the finisher of our faith. We seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. And then other things are added. So I, I found myself this, thinking this week, um, do I fix my eyes on the builder? Do I recognize that all that is good that is given to me in my life is intended to point me toward the one who gave it? And that if I just settle my gaze on the things of God, I'm going to miss the true beauty of God in his fullness. So that was the third thing. The fourth thing, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. First thing that stands out to me, God built everything. You see it, God's responsible for it. Let's move on to point two. The second thing that stands out is this question, who is building the house of my life? Now, as a Christian, I know that God is at work building the house of my life. That's the promise. He who begins a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So I know that God is actively at work in my life. But what I got to thinking was, I'm wondering what kind of outside subcontractors I'm hiring to come in and help God build as if he needs help. Now, I'm not talking about the people that God hires to do his work in our house. Now I'm thinking of pastors, theologians, Christian musicians, uh, you, godly people in your life. There's lots of people that God brings into our life to help him in the course of what he's building. He works through people. He works through his word, right? I'm thinking more of how often I invite competing builders into my house, and that's just a disaster waiting to happen. This is another way of looking at the Old Testament. Don't have any other gods that compete with me. We don't use the term gods much today when we think about it in this context. Maybe this is another way of thinking of it. What other builders, what other contractors am I inviting in who are at odds with what God is doing in my life? So I've been thinking about this week. What is building me? No God is building me. What besides God am I inviting into my life to build me? Because that's going to influence my thoughts, my attitudes, my affections, the desires and love of my heart, my speech, my actions. It's going to influence everything. So what builds our thoughts about politics? Is it a particular news network or a party line or is it the Bible? What builds our thoughts about sex and marriage, Hollywood or the Bible? What builds our thoughts about parenting? What builds our thoughts about what it means to be successful? 
What builds our thoughts about immigrants and refugees? What builds our thoughts about how to run a business or be a good employee? What builds our thoughts about money, about church, about how we should use our speech, about what's okay when it comes to how we treat others, especially those with whom we disagree? What builds our thoughts about God and sin and salvation and forgiveness? It's an old phrase that goes, bidden or unbidden, God is present. Uh, I'm going to change it just a little bit. Bidden or unbidden, we all have builders. Some of them we consciously choose. If you're a follower of Christ, you have consciously asked God to be that builder in your life. One of my questions is, what are the builders we subconsciously choose? You would never say, hey, my view on sex is formed by Hollywood. But if you watch a lot of Hollywood, I wonder. I I would double check it. I I know Sheila and I, years ago, I'll give you a practical example of something we were really convicted on years ago. Was that was, often in culture, you kind of hear this story that, hey, if you get married, the good life is before you have kids and then when you're an empty nester. You see a lot of movies where it's the married couples with kids who are just miserable and so jealous of all their married friends who are jet-setting around the world because they don't have the baggage of kids. You know what Sheila and I realized at one point? We were buying into that. Like this was becoming a chore and a burden, not, as the Bible says, a blessing from God. And we both were kind of like, how did we get here? Like, we knew that wasn't right, and yet something had seeped into... We didn't ask for those builders in our life, but we invited them in. And they were building something contrary to the Word of God, and we had to repent and be broken before God with with that kind of blatant sin against His Word and against our own children. And I might add, I love our children. God did a work in us and broke something in us, and I can't imagine life without my kids. Right? They're a tremendous blessing that God uses in my life. I was thinking about this one, about how we how we choose to use our speech. My culture tells me I can say anything I want. My Bible does not tell me that. My Bible says I am constrained by love. My Bible says that I will answer for every idle word. My Bible says a fountain does not give off salt water and sweet or bitter water and sweet. My Bible tells me that the tongue is a fire and that I had best guard my tongue. So which do I go with? Do I say whatever I want and I go, listen, First Amendment. I love the First Amendment as a right in the United States. But as a Christian, I have more that guides my life than the First Amendment. I have the Bible. That's my guide. Nothing less, nothing more. What does it mean to be successful? Is success money? Is it fame? Is it power? Is it having the car or the house or the vacation that I've always wanted? Is it being able to wear the best clothes? Is it being able to pay whatever money I need to do to be fit? What is the good life? 
what is success? What does the Bible tell us is success? It's a very different answer than what our culture tells us is success. How do I run a business? My culture tells me, uh, make all the money you can. My Bible tells me with integrity and honor with everybody I come in contact with. We could go on and on about this, right? I'm just asking the question, what's building our lives, especially the unbidden things? Are we confident that what is emerging from our lives has the dominating power of the life of Christ at work in us, or are we so busy bringing in competing contractors that are just knocking out all these roofs, chipping away at foundations, stuff like that? So that was our fourth one. That one had me thinking a lot this week. Number five. Moses brought healing and redemption to his people as a faithful servant in God's house, and he was a witness to the things that would be spoken later. But Jesus, the anointed, was faithful as a son of that house. Okay, two points. First of all, this comment about Moses is probably a reference back to Exodus 40.16. Moses delivered the word of God faithfully. He was faithful in all that God appointed him to do. And it just got me thinking, is there any greater compliment but for someone to say of us, we have been faithful in delivering the word of God and bringing healing and redemption to God's people. I cannot imagine a better epitaph on my tombstone. It was faithful to deliver the word of God and bring healing and redemption to God's people. Let's go back to what does it mean to be successful? To deliver the word of God faithfully, bring healing and redemption to God's people. I worked for years in a high school, um, and we would often ask, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And what we meant was, what's the vocation you are going to pursue? But honestly, I think as Christians, thinking of a response in that, that area is the wrong first response. I think if our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, if that's what's pinned on the wall right in front of us, and someone says, what do you want to do with your life? Our answer is, I want to be faithful in delivering the word of God. I bring you healing and redemption to God's people. Maybe you're struggling right now with what is God's plan for me? God's plan for you is to be faithful in delivering the word of God and bring healing and redemption to God's people. And you go, no, 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 I'm talking about my job or should I get married or who should I marry? I get it. Your first response, because this is the response that holds true no matter what direction your life goes. You can do this in any situation. Be faithful in delivering the word of God. Bring healing and redemption to God's people. The other thing I thought of with this was there's no room for hero worship in Christianity unless it's Jesus. So the first part of Hebrews, the writer says, hey, you think angels are really cool? Look at Jesus. And now he's like, you think Moses is really cool? Look at Jesus. So Moses, for the Jewish people, he's the man, right? He brought the word of God down from the mountain. I mean, Moses is just a hero in almost every possible sense of the word. And now the writer of Hebrews says, um, Okay, so Moses faithfully delivered God's word, but now here's God. Here is the word right in front of you. The word made flesh. This is now your focus. And it just reminded me, 
I can't become so infatuated with the servants of Jesus that I lose track of Jesus. So for me, I'll tell you how this looks in my life. You can apply it to your life. I have certain pastors that I really, really admire. You know, I've had certain pastors in the past that I really, really admired, uh, and some of them have actually walked away from the faith. It turned out they were human. I have pastors now that I really, really admire, but it reminds me that if I listen to a sermon they give or I read a book that they wrote or something, I can admire that and I can admire what God is doing in them, but but if my focus is on them and I put them up on this pedestal, that's not where they're supposed to be. I'm supposed to look to Jesus as the author and finisher of my faith once again. Which brings me to my final point. We become that house if we're able to hold on to the confident hope we have in God. That simply means we become part of this house of God's people. Think of the church as a house, and I don't mean as a building, but if it's a helpful image, all the Christians in the world are part of this house. We're all built together. It's full of holy partners and a heavenly calling, to go back to our first one. So that's a fantastic privilege, and it's a huge responsibility. But then he says, if we're able to hold on to the confident hope we have in God. So what do you do with this conditional word? Does this mean we can lose our salvation? Come to Message Plus if you want to talk about that. I don't want to get too far off track here. The author, though, wherever you stand on that question, the author is clearly making this point, that righteous perseverance is the proof of the reality of our salvation. It's not ease or comfort or signs and wonders. It's not the size of ministry or the greatness of reputations. It's not book deals or gold dust or radio shows or a theology degree or even a well-worn Bible. Righteous perseverance is the proof of the reality of salvation. Now, by righteous perseverance, I don't simply mean you show up every Sunday and go through the motions. Right? You could attend a church all your life And when you die, God says, depart from me, I don't know you. Simply attending church is not the marker for righteous perseverance. I'm going to phrase it this way. We can tell if we're really in the house of God because we stay in the house of God in a life of surrender, repentance, and commitment to worshiping God with the imperfect entirety of our lives while we hold fast to the hope that we have in Christ That is, the saving power of his life given for the forgiveness of our sins. I'm not talking about perfection. If that's the standard, we're all out of the race. I'm talking about this commitment to God. I I often think of the Old Testament's description of David as a man after God's own heart. That's still a phrase I struggle with sometimes because David was often a man who followed his own whims and desires, and ended up doing some terrible things. But there was something about David, in spite of terrible flaws and terrible sin in his life, there was something about David that always wanted God. And and when he would repent, in spite of punishment God would give him, he, he came back. Somehow this was the inclination of his heart in some fashion that a merciful God honors. So I don't mean perfection. 
I just mean righteous perseverance. If you want to know, am I saved? I, I grew up in a church culture where we could lose our salvation, and I wrestled with this a lot. Am I saved? Am I saved? Am I really going to heaven? I was the kid who went up at every revival meeting. I was a sure thing. Like, I was going to start it every time. Righteous perseverance is really, if we're looking for that kind of proof in a physical sense, do we stay faithful to God in spite of ups and downs? Are we still coming back? Are we still focused on Christ? And then once we're there, we start to become, this verse says, we become that house. There's an image I read described as kind of how a telescope, if you've got a telescope that compacts and it slowly expands, like our salvation, when we get it, we get the telescope. But the longer we're in Christ, the more we understand the depth and the beauty and the power and the awesomeness of our salvation. And that just increases until the fullest expression, which is at the return of Jesus and our life with God in the world to come. So even as we be in the house of God, we are constantly becoming, all of us, in this journey together. So that's my six points. But here's what I think these six verses are saying as kind of an overall arc with all of these included. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the master and the builder of our house, whose plan is to work in us until we die as he builds us and builds his church into the fullness of salvation and righteousness. Lord, I'm grateful that you're the builder, that you're the author of our faith, you're the finisher of our faith, and you're the builder in the middle of those two things. Lord, I I just thought more and more this week, do I fix my eyes on you? Do I recognize all those aspects of your goodness in my life? That I am saved and I have this faith because of you. That because of you, I have this hope in the future I fix my eyes on. But even now, Lord, you're so very present and working in me and in your people. So thanks. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.